Local news now. Analysis and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. Overcast, uh, wet start to the day here in Kamloops. we got a packed show for you. We're going to talk about uh, China's beef with Canada with BC Cattlemen's Association's Kevin Boone. We'll hear from BC's seniors advocate Isabel McKenzie. I'll also have Rob Shaw from the Vancouver Sun on to talk uh, the government's glacial pace at approving cannabis licenses. But first, I wanted to start off with an update and a really uh, important story, I think, and one that we talked about. We began the week with it on Monday. Uh, we have a bit of an update I want to bring on and uh, Melissa Ridgen from the uh, Aboriginal People's Television Network now. Good morning, Melissa. How are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. So to recap, Melissa, we talked to you on Monday. Uh, a First Nations couple showed up at Royal Atlanta Hospital here in Kamloops uh, to mm -hmm. give birth. Uh, should have been uh, one of the proudest days of their lives. Uh, they have a C-section birth. Within 90 minutes, uh, MCFD staff, Ministry of Children and Family Development, show up to take the baby out of some report of neglect. Mm -hmm. uh, the grandmother in the room fends them off. A day or yep. two later, the mother's sedated. Uh, they come back. She wakes up. Baby is gone. Uh, as we talk right now, that baby is still in the care of a foster family, and the family uh, is fighting to get her back. Now, the, there's a lot about this story that bothers me, but the biggest question of all is the why. Uh, you, yeah. you guys have obtained an audio recording. Uh, do we have any kind of clarification as to what in the world is going on here that sparked MCFD staff to do what so they did? There was uh, initially the uh, social workers had said we... Uh, or had told medical staff apparently and medical staff had told the family um we uh think that there's neglect going on here uh these 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 people can't take care take their child home because they're homeless they uh and then they changed the story to they live in a, uh, a group home none of this is true the family the, the parents live in a two-bedroom apartment yeah. um so then in this recording though none of that is mentioned that there's um, that there had been a, a tip or something made prior to the baby being born. Uh, the social workers don't mention that. They had told the family that in the hospital that there was some tip, but it doesn't come out on this recording. In the recording, they're just saying medical staff counted numerous um, uh, instances of neglect. And they said, well, how could that be when the baby's, you know, just born? It's just an hour old. The mom had just had a C-section. You can't get up and tend to your baby's needs. And they yeah. said, well, numerous reports from medical staff that mom wasn't taking care of baby. Mom was asleep when the baby was crying. And, you know, what, the problem with that is anybody who's had a C-section knows that uh, it's, it's major surgery. You're oftentimes, yes. uh, you come out of it and you're still medicated an hour and a half later or even a day later. You're sleeping and that's why they keep you in the hospital is so that they can care for your baby while you're sleeping off surgery. And in this instance, it just seems like all those normal things that happen to most moms who go through uh, a C-section didn't happen in this case. It was used against her. For what reason? I don't know. We, I mean, nobody knows what's in the minds of the, the medical staff who had had determined that she was by sleeping was neglecting her child yeah there's there's in your story you mentioned that there seems to be a communication between the father and social staff where they say hey listen we we can't even wake her up to feed the baby and he responds something along the lines of well that's because you sedated her yeah uh, i know you mentioned to me you've had a c-section in the past i know yep. that my little guy henrik came into the world in a c-section my wife yep. was so exhausted and yeah. medically devastated. I remember her just passing out in the middle of breastfeeding because she was just oh, wiped totally. out. Totally. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and the, the thing is, you get to do that if you are, uh, you know, a middle class non-indigenous person if you are uh, poor you're indigenous you're immigrant there's a different level of what uh, people expect from you and I've seen this throughout the country because um, I've covered a lot of these CFS stories and it seems like there's this standard that everybody uh, we get to enjoy as a privilege I mean I'm indigenous but I'm, I look like a white woman uh, I'm well-spoken I'm educated I get a different level of care uh, and treatment in this world than somebody who isn't well-spoken, who's a visible minority, um, you know, and and this, I've had so many people email and say this exact same thing. It's like, mm. well, I went through exactly this yeah. uh, with a C-section and nobody came and took my baby. Nobody told me, wow, you slept, you slept through your baby crying. I did sleep through my baby crying a lot of times. I was drugged, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but you get the benefit, you get the privilege of that uh, if you're not unsophisticated or you're not you know, uh, an indigenous couple a lot of times. And it seems like this is this is what's happened in this case. There's a lot about this story that bothers me, and I think there's a lot of unanswered questions here. There's one aspect, though, that yeah. really gets me. I mean, the whole thing gets me, but this one in particular, because I've seen it play out in different situations before, and it's almost like either incompetence or a level of insane bureaucracy puts somebody in a corner where they're going to emotionally respond. In this case, yeah. you know, these are parents who've had their baby taken. I can tell you right now, oh, uh, yeah. if I had my kid taken, I would be insane with rage. Yeah. Like insane. Yeah. And, in the, and you in would have the ability to, to fight this, right? What The first thing you would do, I'm going to get a lawyer. I'm getting my kid back. Imagine being, you know, you don't have that level of sophistication. You don't yes. have the money. Yeah. You do what they're to telling you to do. So CFS, uh, or, or whatever the agency is called there, um, Ministry for, yeah, MCFT, um, they have just arbitrarily said, okay, we'll discuss giving your baby back to you if you guys move in with one of your parents. And they said, like, well, why would we do that? We're grown adults. You have established no reason that we are, don't even have our child. Yeah. And now you're saying we have to get out of our apartment, move in with one of our mothers. And they're like, yep, if you want your baby back, that's what you have to do. And I said to the what? dad, well, what are you going to do? And he says, we're going to move in with one of our moms, I guess. Like, we have no choice. They didn't give us another option. Weird. And you're just so beaten down. Yeah. And exhausted yeah. that they could tell you to run around the block eight times naked and you'd be like, I guess I'm running around. Like, yeah. it, it doesn't even need to make sense to you at this yeah. point. You're just like, they have all of the power. They can demand anything and you're just going to do it. But there's a sense and of the story where the, where the father is getting frustrated. And again, as I said, I, I mean, I would be beyond frustrated. And we're, yeah. our staff almost seem to be chiding him for like, hey, this is an example of what we're concerned about. But you put him in a situation where he's going to emotionally react and yeah. be angry, and then you're holding that against him. And that bothers me exactly. at a very basic level. I know. And this happens everywhere, Shane. This isn't just specific to Kamloops. We're seeing this across the country. Um, and it's, it's twisted. It's yeah. twisted. I don't think that people realize how, how dysfunctional this system is because most people don't come into contact with it. And we, as just regular Canadians, kind of like to think of, uh, of Child and Family Services as being, you know, it's, oh, thank goodness they're there to help these, these neglected or abused kids. We like to think of that that's the extent of their job, and that certainly is a portion of their job, and, and absolutely there are kids who need to be protected and need to be in care. Absolutely. But what, what we don't realize is that there is uh, a lot of this type of stuff that's going on within CFS agencies across the country, and it's an abuse of power. They hide behind 
privacy laws saying, oh, we can't discuss this uh, because of the family's privacy and, and the privacy of the child. And what I've increasingly realized is the truth is that these privacy laws uh, mostly protect the agencies from the prime public eyes. Yeah. Have you received, I mean, again, there's significant questions going on here about the rationale of the staff that it did this. I know you and I talked last, we both got the same information from the Ministry of Children and Family Development, yeah. which is basically yeah. talking points and then pulling down privacy laws. Uh, yeah. so you've now raised even more concerning questions. Have you had any new interaction with the ministry or any effort to kind of say, okay, we're going to address no. this response? And they're on my agenda to contact. I've been mostly busy with uh, the family and the advocates that are trying to help the family. Uh, but yeah, there's the next follow-up will be a circle back to the ministry to see. And I, I mean, I think you and I both know what we can expect from them. <laughs> yeah. They'll just resend the talking points that they sent originally. But I think but they, I think they owe us more than that now. And that's the one thing that bothered me from the beginning. I mean, again, as you said, they serve an important role in preventing children from being abused, etc. But uh, unfortunately, in this province, the Ministry of Children and Family Development has a rather tattered history of some rather yeah. colossal failures. And in this case, I think that they owe more than pulling down privacy laws and hiding behind them. They owe us an explanation or some kind of assurance that, yeah, we had a credible situation. Here is why we did what we did. Mm -hmm. um, I think that there needs to be some mechanism, some agency, some way uh, that somebody checks these decisions to say, okay, this was Agreed. a legitimate or, you know what, what the hell were you guys doing here? There's no checks and balances. And this is, I mean, the CFS has more, um, more control than than even police. Like, police have to get a warrant to come and search your house or something, right? CFS doesn't have to do any of that. They can walk in, they can take your child, they can throw whatever demand at you they want, hoops galore, and there's nobody that checks this and says, well, wait a minute, this is ridiculous. Yeah. They just get to operate with impunity. And again, I think that the reason that, that this is allowed to happen is that people aren't paying attention to this. That we just think, oh, they're just quietly over there doing their job saving children. And so we're not looking, we're not paying attention, so we're not seeing this, this, how, how they abuse the power that they have. Somebody had suggested maybe um, what needs to happen is you have to, have, you have to go before a judge and present evidence in order to have uh, a judge give you a warrant to apprehend a child. Mm. You know, and I think, well, yeah, that, that might be something, but then I guess to play devil's advocate, what if the child really is in imminent danger? Do you have time to be sure. yeah. gathering this evidence and going before a court? You know, in the meantime, the child's seriously injured or dead. Yeah. So there's, I mean, there's not a perfect system, uh, but certainly the system as it exists appears to be broken. Yeah. The fix, I don't know. I'm just a, I'm just a lowly reporter who is nosy. That's all I've got going for me. <laughs> I don't, I don't know how to fix things. Well, you're a very good reporter, shining a light in a very, very important oh. story, and uh, well, I hope thanks. you keep at it because I think at the end of the day, uh, the Children and Families Minister in this province, Katrine Conroy, needs to come on TV, needs to come on radio. He's yeah. to come on this station and explain to us what in the hell is going on here. She yeah. has to do that. Because I can yeah. tell you right now, Melissa, her staff are bunkering down and hoping this thing blows over and that you stop doing what you're doing and move on to something else. And then they Well, not, let's over. not let them. Yeah, Let's absolutely. not let them. Melissa, thank you so much <laughs> for taking you. some time. It's nice to talk to you twice in one Nice week. talking to you. <laughs> I'm sure we'll talk again, and hopefully it's with a resolution of all of this. Yeah, amen to that. Okay, take care. You too. That's Melissa Bye. Ridgen. She's uh, with the Aboriginal People's Television Network. Uh, she broke a story concerning uh, what we call Baby H, an infant that was taken from Royal Inland Hospital. Uh, the reasons, well, there's lots of questions swirling around that, as you heard. We'll take a quick break. Rob Shaw joins us next. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now.
You're listening to Shane Woodford on Radio NL 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Pleasure to join the program this morning from the Vancouver Sun uh, in Victoria, Rob Shaw. Good morning, Rob. How are you? Good morning, Shane. I'm basically looking for any excuse to bring you on because today's the last Woodford Show. <laughs> that's good. That's good. We can work that out. Yeah. Hey, you did a you did a really good story uh, recently. Uh, the BC government, as we know, is uh, is in charge of approving cannabis licenses. That's moving uh, at a glacial pace, but they're also in a troubling position of also up, uh, applying for and competing for those licenses with the government's own stores. Uh, an interesting case in in your neck of the woods, where the where a First Nation in Cowichan wants a cannabis store in a prime location, while the government also wants a cannabis store in a prime location, and it seems to be a bit of monkey business. Does that raise some serious questions about what's going on behind the scenes in your mind? Yeah, I think the the biggest concern raised down here in this dispute between a, a First Nation and Cowichan and the government is that um, the province can delay the security approval of a private cannabis operator um, without really basically telling this private operator why their store or business application hasn't been approved. And then at the same time, another branch of the same government can basically um, try to compete with that store for the prime real estate in the community. So you see, even though there is only one public cannabis store technically open right now in your neck of the woods there in Kamloops, Um, The government has plans all over the place to actually open more. And you see them at a bunch of different local councils with their B.C. government cannabis employees arguing that they want to be in certain stores. They want to get into the private shopping malls. They want to, you know, they want to run a successful business. And they're coming up against competing with the same private operators that they are also uh, very, very, very slowly licensing. So... The larger issue here, I guess, is how fair is that um, for private operators who've been waiting months? And is there any bit of inside government that could be delaying the security approvals on the one hand so that the other hand, the government can get the best locations in the community before anyone else gets approved? That's kind of the question that's come up. Absolutely. Here in Kamloops, we have something like 17 approved cannabis stores uh, approved at the council level. As you know, we had a government store open on legalization day back in October. It took months and months. We've had a second private store open, but months after the fact, and we got 17 approved licenses that are sitting there waiting for provincial approvals. I'm assuming it's a similar situation around the province. The thing that gets me, Rob, is that I'm hearing now more and more quietly from cannabis owners I talk to here who are on that waiting list that they're holding leases, they're paying up money on property that is sitting there month after month after month, and their situation is becoming fiscally desperate. And the thing that really bothers me is um, they won't talk to me because they're genuinely concerned that if they become the squeaky wheel, that somebody in the province behind the scenes goes, okay, there's an application we're sitting on. Yeah, it, well, it's frightening to them because no one knows what these security checks actually involve. The government won't talk about them Police won't talk about them. I was talking to some people this week who pointed out that federally, if you're trying to get a federal license to grow marijuana and sell it, um, you end up having to go through CSIS, which is uh, the you know Canada's intelligence spy agency, which yeah. is part of that security process. Now, no one's really sure if it's CSIS has any hand in the provincial uh, security check. That may just be the RCMP, but it's a deep deep dive into people's lives and finances and, and connections. The 
idea behind it from the government is that we're supposed to weed out any links to organized crime so that it, we don't allow, you know, the Hells Angels or someone to put up a storefront and sell marijuana legally. But because it's not being explained what these security checks actually involve and the timelines on them, they just end up frightening everyone involved. And like you said, no one wants to, to make any waves because they're not sure what government could just do to them behind the scenes. And it it's very, I mean, I think um, it's much worse than we thought it was going to be when the government announced uh, its own provincial process after the feds announced legalizing cannabis in October. We all thought this was going to be faster. Yeah, and the totally. fact that the government can't even explain to us why it's so slow, I think, is pretty concerning. So, and I think we're all agree. I mean, we don't want organized crime in the business. We all get that. That sounds great. But my concern is, is they're moving it so slow, and I'm hearing more and more concerned people here in Kamloops that are legitimate business owners that want to start this business and jump in, that the whole process is such a mess that they're now going to chase out or force legitimate, um, clean business owners uh, to basically pack in the towel and fold up operations because they fiscally can't sustain it anymore. Yeah, and it, it put a lot of people in a tough position of whether they continue to operate, you know, air quotes, illegally um, without their municipal and provincial permits and approvals. If you already had a store that was operating, you're faced with this question of do you continue to operate and earn a little bit of money to keep yourself alive or do you shut down entirely, put yourself at the whim of the government for the security check, and then find yourself waiting six months later with no idea where you're at in the process. And it's a totally untenable situation. I, I mean, this is the problem with a province that is not only the licensor, but the wholesaler and distributor and retail branch and competitor uh, of private stores in the cannabis business. So not only you may end up getting approval to open your private store and you may end up, you know, uh, a few blocks down the street from an eventual government cannabis store and you'll end up having to get your cannabis from the government and you'll probably have to have higher prices because they'll be cheaper at the government store. So you're already disadvantaged so many different ways. It, it is a mess. I'm surprised that the government isn't getting more pushback on it, but I think, as you point out, it's because there's so much fear that uh, that you might get uh, blacklisted and then yeah. you're just gone. So, yeah, absolutely. The mess. Uh, Rob, it's, uh, it's been a pleasure. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but I did want to get you on because I love talking to you. Uh, you provide some valuable insight into a lot of different topics, and honestly, from my perspective, you're, you're one of the best reporters in the province. Um, but thanks, thanks for coming on, man. It's been, it's been a real pleasure. Yeah, we're going to miss you. Yeah, going to miss you guys, too. Stay in touch. Okay. Talk to you later. That's Rob Shaw from the Vancouver Sun talking about the glacial pace and uh, a lot of real problems that surround the province's role in the legal cannabis industry. I think this is going to be an interesting story to watch playing out. Quick break, uh, the bottom of the hour news, and we'll have the BC Seniors Advocate join us right after this. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning and welcome back to the Woodford Show. Real pleasure to be joined on the phone by uh, BC's Seniors Advocate, Isabel McKenzie. Good morning, Isabel. How are you? Good morning, Shane. I'm well, thank you. Excellent. Uh, you recently wrote a new report, and before we get into some of the aspects of that, I'm curious. I know you and Danielle Fontaine don't have, uh, are a little at odds these days, but he was on my show uh, not that long ago, sort of saying that you have to answer to Adrian. You know, the, you know the drill here. That uh, 
He's implying you're not entirely independent and that you may be tailoring some of your reports uh, because you have to answer to Adrian Dix. Uh, so to be fair, just right off the top, I want to get you to respond to that. Uh, do you think that's a fair commentary from Mr. Fontaine or no? Uh, no, I don't think that's a fair comment at all, Shane. I think um, this is a statutory office of government. It's independent. Uh, it's no different from the medical health officer, the coroner, the public guardian and trustee, the uh, independent utilities commission. All are appointed in the same way. And what you're looking at is what are your statutory duties and obligations, and mine are quite clear. And honestly, I don't think anybody in reviewing the work of the office, and this office has existed under two governments now, would look at the totality of the work and in any way, shape, or form think that we are tailoring our message to uh, suit the government of the day. It is unfortunate the sort of more adversarial approach that the BC care providers have chosen to take towards this office. I think there are many areas where our objectives align. But, you know, this office has a statutory duty and obligation to monitor the services to seniors. That includes the services delivered by care providers, uh, members of Mr. Fontaine's organization, and services provided by government. And inevitably, in monitoring those services and in assessing how they're performing and in making recommendations, there are going to be times when my office does not align with the objectives of um, the people delivering the service, whoever they are. And I think the important thing is to use those opportunities because we look at things objectively, we review the evidence, we look at the data, and where we are not performing as we should, whether we're a care home, whether we're a home support program, I think rather than attacking the messenger, we should look at the message and we should reflect on how we can do better because I think that's what's going to serve the needs of British Columbia seniors, not some kind of little uh, dust-up because somebody doesn't like what the, you know, the, the review says. I think we need to step back and say, what is this telling us and how can we improve? And certainly that's my approach, and I work with all care providers. Um, there's 300 of them in the province. I think Mr. Fontaine, uh, out of the 28,000 beds out there. I think his organization represents about 8,000 of those beds, so about just over a third. Um, but I meet with them regularly through teleconference. I'm having another one next week. And, you know, we, we move forward and we try to improve things for seniors. You uh, put out a report not that long ago about uh, home care supports and finding that there's, uh, shall we say, room for improvement. Uh, in essence, saying that, uh, that how it's being done is, is failing seniors. It's been about a week since the report's been out. Uh, have you seen anything in the way of movement there to try and address that uh, issue? I know it's not an overnight solution for sure, but uh, do you feel we're moving in the right direction after that release or no? Well, I think the government uh, certainly was welcoming again of the information of the review. You don't, you don't know what it's going to say until you conduct the review and you see what uh, what comes of it and what the numbers say. And I think what we were all a bit surprised about, myself included, Shane, was um, the degree to which our public home support program is effectively unaffordable for uh, very moderate, uh, modest income BC seniors. So um, the home support program 
while it is a public program, BC is one of the few provinces in Canada that charges for it. Alberta doesn't charge for it. Ontario doesn't charge for it. And what we charge is a calculation based on your income. And we produce what's called the daily rate. This is how much each day you can pay for your home support on every day you receive it. And I think a lot of people thought, oh, well, you know, that co-payment is probably making sure that people who can afford to pay a little are contributing a little. But in fact, when you review it, uh, what it results in is a senior who has an income of $28,000 a year, which is the median income of a senior in BC, if they were to get a one-hour daily visit of home support, we would, char- we would be charging them $8,800 a year, $8,800 a year, or 33% of their income just for their daily visit of home support. And I think most of us would recognize that's not affordable because there's not going to be enough left over for all the other costs that they have to pay. I'm always struck, and I did some volunteer time in, in, in a senior's home uh, in Vancouver years ago uh, and have moved some relatives into them over the years. I'm always struck by... Um, a, there's there's always the desire to keep people at home as long as possible, and B, uh, while some homes are really nice and 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 there's some, lots of good positive things about them, some homes are not. Um, how do we how do we kind of I don't know how to phrase this. How do we get sort of more human about how we deal with with our seniors? Because I think in a lot of cases. Um, they're put in homes or situations where I, I know I wouldn't want to end my life in that situation. Well, I think the first thing we have to do is make sure that we're providing the support we can uh, in the community to keep people at home as long as possible. That's where they, most people, that's where they want to stay. And I think what this review shows is we're not doing as good a job as we think we're doing. And to be fair to the health authorities and the government past and present, uh, I think they all thought we were doing a better job than we are. And that's the value of these kinds of reviews, these independent reviews such as my office did, which is we just look at the numbers and we report what they say. And when we see that uh, 61% of the seniors who are admitted to care homes, Shane, had absolutely no home support in the months leading up to their admission, that's a moment to step back and say, okay, this isn't working the way we think it should be working. You should be able to get some assistance at home to see if that is sufficient to allow you your independence. And what we have right now is a group of people, for the most part based on their inability to pay for public home support, going into long-term care before they really need to. And then what that translates into is when you're in the care home, if you don't want to be there and you don't need to be there, you're going to be unhappy. We did this comprehensive review. We did a survey of every care home in the province, all 300 of them, a very uh, standardized, highly respected uh, quality of life survey um, that's used. It's the international standard that's used. And what resulted, and it's interesting, your previous comments, some people are very happy. In fact, about half of the people in the care homes are quite happy, but about half of them aren't. And 40% of them don't want to be there. And so if they don't want to be there and they don't need to be there, the evidence is showing that there is some more things we could be doing in the community to uh, support seniors. 
The other stat that kind of jumped out at me in your report, uh, and it's this one about 63% of home support clients receive less than an hour of care per day. And I thought that was awful. I mean, I don't know how we, how we improve on that, or, but it just seemed like a really kind of sad stat. It is, because you have to remember there's the two buckets. Bucket number one is the whole group of people who aren't getting any home support because they can't afford it. And then bucket number two are the people who are receiving it. For the most part, those are the lowest income seniors. So if you're on the guaranteed income supplement, GIS, you don't pay anything for your home support. But if your income is a dollar over that threshold, which is about 25000 so you know, your $26,000 a year in income, you do have to pay for it and you have to pay quite a lot for it. So then we look at the ones who are receiving it and the first thing we know is they don't have a lot of money to buy extra help. This is it. And we know that because we know what their income is. It's the lowest of incomes. And they are on average, um, 63% are getting uh, less than an hour of day of service. Now what that's actually translating into is they're not getting daily service. So on the days they do receive service, they get about an hour, but they're not getting it every day. And so when you think about the senior that's out there who needs a little bit of help getting up in the morning and getting going, they actually need that every day, not just some days. And what the data are showing is we are only providing it on some days. The other thing it's showing us is we're doing um, not a very good job of supporting family caregivers around respite care. If we were, the numbers would be showing us higher average hours on service days because you deliver respite in a block of hours of three or four hours. And what the, the caregiver distress amongst all of the home support population is about a third, 31%. But when that family is at the breaking point of their loved one going into a care facility, that doubles to 62%. And when you look at the hours of service we are providing to those distressed caregivers, because we can look at that in the, uh, in the data, we are falling far short of the four hours a day that is the break-even point, the cost break-even point between providing somebody um, the care in a facility and providing it at home. Well, as I said earlier, obviously plenty of room for improvement, and um, I hope as we get there, uh, because I think there's some situations that could use some some pretty uh, drastic stepping up. Uh, Isabel, I appreciate the time as always. Okay, my pleasure, Shane. Thank you very much. And that was Isabel McKenzie, that's BC's Seniors Advocate, uh, weighing in on home care, as you heard there, and having some serious concerns about uh, how we're going about it currently. Uh, now up to the government to make changes, if any. We'll take a quick break in the Woodford Show. More coming your way next. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. The voice of your community. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. As you know, China's out in the world acting like a petulant child because Canada detained uh, Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou at the, uh, at the Americans' request. They've done all sorts of nasty stuff lately, including uh, blocking off pork and beef exports from Canada. Uh, there's some now questions about the legitimacy of their claims for doing so. But anyway, we want to get a sense of what that means for the Canadian beef industry. Pleasure to welcome from the BC Cattlemen's Association, Kevin Boone, on the phone right now. As you're aware, we've got this uh, situation with China where they're not very happy with us uh, 
We're not going to get into the reasons why, but uh, one of their temper tantrum acts is, as of last night, uh, is to cease all beef exports uh, from Canada into China. Uh, I'm not sure how big an impact it is. I'm, I'm assuming it's fairly large. I've heard numbers tossed around like a billion dollar a year worth of the industry. But uh, I guess uh, off the top, uh, your, your sort of sense here is as China throws a sort of uh, curveball at us? Well, you know, in this case, from the information we're getting is uh, on this, it may be warranted uh, in the fact that it appears that there was some documentation that may not have been uh, correct that may have been actually uh, counterfeit and if that's the case uh, this is more of a criminal investigation and and needs to be stopped because really in that case it's our reputation as uh, a country and as as suppliers uh, to make sure that we get to the bottom of it i don't think it has helped uh, the uh, tensions or the political um, issues that have gone on between uh, north america and china uh, however, I think at this point in time, from what we're getting, um, is both countries are working together to come to resolve on this. Um, it is of concern to us as is any market. Um, you know, we depend on on market access to get the most value out of every carcass, and China is one that has been growing for us. Uh, especially recently in the last couple of months, we've seen new um, uh, openings for different products and that's been helpful. So this is not a welcome time to see this uh, for us and our industry. Um, I think that the economic impact to us, um, well, it is fairly large. It's not uh, gonna make or break us. It's about 1% of our domestic product of beef that does go into China. Will probably affect the pork industry much heavier than the beef, but it's still a hundred million dollar uh, market for us a year and a potential to grow much larger. So we would like to see it resolved just as quickly as possible. Yeah, on a, I mean, we don't know what the timeline is, obviously, here, Kevin, but if this lasts, you know, a few weeks or if it goes into the months, does, does the headache kind of increase a little bit or no? Well, uh, you know, the longer uh, that it persists, the, the harder it is because we have markets and uh, we do have customers there that if we can't supply them, they go elsewhere. So we have to rebuild those. So uh, it's kind of that how many steps backwards do we take until they get it uh, resolved so that we can get back in there and get those reestablished. Um, for the most part, um, we have other markets we can go to. Uh, but as I say, it's, it's building those. It takes years and it can just take one interruption before you lose a customer uh, to either another country or another supplier and we have to rebuild those back. So we would like to see it. Uh, the longer it goes on, the harder it is to rebuild those. Any idea as to why anybody would counterfeit documents or, or even have that pass muster on, a, on sort of an international trade level? <laughs> well, I, <laughs> that's, a, that's a loaded question in a lot of ways because I, I, I just can't fathom why someone would do it, especially with China, because they are very vigilant in monitoring their imports and so it's not the place to play with so i i guess i would have to question the motives uh, of those individuals that may have done it if they did do it and you know the the thing is is what were they trying to gain if they did it uh, because the short-term gain for them can be a, an awful lot of long-term pain for an entire industry uh, and the economic value to the country here so uh, why they would do it, I don't know. Uh, we have a lot of other markets. Uh, why they 
uh, would choose China to do this with, I don't know, because it uh, is is something where it's not a food safety issue. It's This is a regulatory issue, and uh, I don't get the sense in it. So I guess I would have to question the intelligence of why they would do it. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Uh, have you heard what's the scuttlebutt sort of within the industry as this, uh, as this thing has happened? Is there uh, people, you know, buzzing your phone and saying, I'm a little worried or I'm concerned or what's the sort of general sentiment out there? You know, and, and not so much uh, at this point because, as I say, it is a market that adds value to us, but it doesn't uh, overall at this point in time. We're not going to see a drop off in our values here. We're in a time of year where we have um, great markets for our products over there. There's there's people clamoring at the door to buy it. So we will move all our product right now. As I say, when it stretches out, uh, you know, if it stretched out for longer into uh, weeks or months, uh, we would get more concerned. But even at that, um, it is a major market, but it's not the end-all, beat-all. And I, I think that uh, overall we won't see uh, market fluctuations or a huge effect on us as an industry at this point in time. Just out of curiosity, Kevin, what's, what's, if China's not you know a big, big share of the pie as far as the market goes, uh, where does Canadian beef go as the top one or two markets? Sorry, I missed that, Shane. Uh, just wondering if, if China is a small part of our market that we're that we're sending our beef to. Where who's our sort of, which countries are we sort of sending the most beef to? Who tops the market? Yeah, so the, our our biggest customer is the U.S. Uh, we export uh, roughly between forty-five and forty-seven percent of uh, what we produce here in Canada, and of what we export of that forty-seven percent. Uh, the U.S. takes about 90% of that. So they're taking approximately 40% of the beef that we export. Uh, so, you know, when you look at who our main customers are, there's, you know, China, Korea, uh, Japan are all opening up. Uh, Europe is starting to open up. But far and above, um, the U.S. is our biggest market. Uh, you know, if you look at them taking 40% of what we produce in Canada, and China taking one, you can kind of put that into perspective. Yeah. Uh, before I let you go, just out of curiosity, I know that hasn't been uh, a, sort of a terrible wildfire season so far. Fingers crossed that continues, but we have seen back-to-back pretty brutal ones. What's the sort of sense from the, the ranching community as we kind of enter the dog days of summer here? Well, it's um, cautious optimism. Uh, you know, we've seen a year where we're, we're not seeing overly moist conditions, but we're seeing where we've had a little more moisture here in the last few weeks. Uh, we haven't um, had a lot of heat to dry things out, so we're getting through these first early months at least uh, right now. Uh, there is some good growth of grass out there, which uh, should it turn hot and uh, even drier with no uh, moisture, it will turn into more of a tinderbox uh, when we get to the typical fire season. So right now, fingers crossed, uh, we're getting our cattle out there to try and remove those fine fuels wherever we can and utilize that grass and uh, turn that sunshine into protein. And uh, we're we're just uh, hoping that uh, we can get through a season without having to battle these uh, huge fires that we have. And we're working closely, too, with the wildfire branch. I think that they have learned a lot in the last couple of years. They're doing a lot more quick response to fires and so i think that there's a lot of changes coming into play that will be very helpful yeah and on that uh, top topic of using sort of cattle as fire mitigation i've heard that in communities like quinell and 
areas in the caribou that they're actually asking uh, you know ranchers to put uh, put the sections of the herd or whatever on certain areas to kind of basically eat down the fire risk is that sort of working out well or no well so yes and and we've actually got a new program uh, we partnered with uh, the government uh, um, to and they've given us some funding to do some pilot projects where we actually target graze uh, with our cattle in some of the interface areas around uh, some of uh, these towns and cities and important infrastructure, we're just getting that going, identifying some sites where we feel are the highest risk and the most opportunity. Uh, but we're, I think that what we saw out of uh, 27, 20, 2017 and 18 fires, that there's a recognition of the value of our livestock out there uh, grazing down these fine fuels uh, like the grass and stuff to be able to slow, stop, or turn the fires. And so how do we use that? as a useful tool in fire mitigation not just in how we produce uh, great great uh, food products so perfect kevin always a pleasure i know your time is precious and you're running around today but i appreciate you to, appreciate you coming on for a few minutes not a problem shane always a pleasure to talk to you guys from the bc cattlemen's association that was kevin boone and that brings to an end the last woodford show on radio and my thanks to you for listening it has been a pleasure one more show to go though Name of the show changes, special two-hour edition of Inside Politics coming your way tomorrow. It includes the panel, includes the premier, includes the leader of the opposition, includes the Green Party leader, and in studio, the president of Trans Mountain, Ian Anderson. All that and more coming your way tomorrow. From CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Local news now.